Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for joining us for another week of Take Two. You'll notice we're doing things a little differently here. Only two chairs on set. So there's not going to be squabbling, though you can fight with me if you want, just a little bit. But uh, we're going to be talking issues. Representative Chris Stewart is in town here, leaving tomorrow to go back to Washington for Congress to go back in session. But we want to talk a little bit about the issues today and also the travels. You have not been resting this summer, it sounds like. Yeah, they call it an August recess, but it's not really much of a break. There's Usually no Foursquare or Tetherball? Uh, you try to spend a little time with your wife and children, but it really is almost always very busy. A work break. It yeah. seems like that for most of our congressional leaders. Before we get into your travels, I wanted to talk about a couple of the issues that are on the forefront right now. We just learned yesterday that President Trump would be taking $54 million that was allotted for Hill Air Force Base for improvements there and then moving it to the border wall. Yeah. Is this something you support or is this the wrong use of funds and there's a better way to do yeah, it? Yeah, you know, I support the president's decision and his concerns about southern border. I've been there. I know that it truly is uh, it is a crisis that we've got to we've got to get a handle on, but I disagree with the president on this. I think these priorities that we've worked through for the military, the way we've prioritized how we're going to spend that money is something we've worked on for, in this case, years. The Utah Test and Training Range will be affected by this as a, as a former Air Force pilot who has dropped bombs out on the Utah Test and Training Range, or the UTER as we call it. I know what a critical national asset that is. Uh, and I think the, the White House just made a mistake in this. They just should not have taken that money away from Hill and the UTER and the things that we know as a national priority for national security. And we're doing everything we can to push back with the White House and to try to change that. Is it a done deal or has the money already been moved and there's no getting it back no matter how much you argue at this point? Well, I don't think I don't think it's a done deal in the sense that even if they've made the decision, the money hasn't actually been transferred. We're, I think, quite a long ways from that. So I think there's an opportunity to maybe change their mind. But honestly, I think it's probably a, a heavy lift for us to try and get the White House to relook at this. And if that's the case, and if we can't get them to relook and to reprioritize this money, then we have to do the obvious thing. And that's as a member of the Appropriations Committee, the committee that actually spends the money. We need to go back and, and to make this the next the, in the next year the highest priority so that we get that money to Hill. And by the way, Heidi, it's important to know I'm not doing this just because Hill is part of my uh, of the state here. It's not in my district, but obviously it's a very important priority for me. Uh, I'm not doing it to protect jobs here. I'm not doing it for anything parochial or local. It, it truly is a national security concern that I have. The Utah Test and Training Range is an unbelievable asset. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the country. That was going to be my next question. Are there other places where they could say, let's just do that? But it doesn't seem like there's wide open pieces of land where you can drop bombs well, when you oh want Oh my to. gosh, you just have no idea. Yeah. Uh, how valuable that is, how unique that is. We actually have to go to Australia or New Zealand to find anything even close to what you can do up the uter. As a B-1 guy, I mean, it's the only place you could ever go to drop a whole load of bombs, 84, 500-pound bombs. Uh, the, the electronic equipment, the jamming equipment, the, the airspace that they have, nothing else like it. But they need this new control center that we had appropriated this money for. Now, that doesn't mean that Hill's going to be shut down at all. It means nothing like that. It doesn't mean that the uter's going to be shut down. It means nothing like that. 
but it means they're going to continue to work in degraded facilities when they really do need these upgrades. And that's why I say, we've got to get Lighthouse to change their mind, or we've got to go reappropriate the funds in the next year. Do one of those two things as quickly as possible. All right. You told me you're headed back to Washington tomorrow. I think most people in the next few days will be headed back there um, for Congress to go back in session. Is it the 9th? Um, yeah, it's next week. Next week, yeah. a few days away. Yeah. And there's been a lot of talk, it's sad to say, but even since the last uh, few weeks when Congress has been in session, there have been more mass shootings, more calls for something to be done. Is there a chance that when Congress gets back there, this will be a top priority? Or is it one of those issues that just is a fight every time and there really is no common ground? I'd like to think there is common ground. Well, I, I think there is. And the truth is it's a little bit of both of what you said. This really is a priority for many people, including myself. And I really mean that. At the same time, it's not easy. This is something where there is very mm -hmm. delicate common ground. And, and I think we need to find and search for that. And, and by the way, if you think the answer to this is gun control and gun control only, you just, it's just, it isn't. There's a much, much deeper problem here. And I think many, many Americans are beginning to realize this. This is an issue of our society and our culture. This is an issue of, of national mental health. Uh, it's an issue of, uh, of violence as well and violence in our culture. And part of that might be looking at what could we do, uh, you know, to make it so that people who are, are, are criminal intent or are mentally ill, actually demonstrably mentally uh, suffering from mental illness, you know, that they don't have access to guns if they've been expressed an intent to use that and to create, and to create violence with that. But you got to understand as well that I, I'm a strong supporter of the Second Amendment. I will always be a strong supporter of the Second Amendment. I think there's a real purpose in that. And the the challenge we have is trying to find, you know, that delicate balance. Would you support universal background checks? Because when we talk about mental health, one of the latest shooters I think we've learned couldn't actually get a gun through going through a store and actually having to go through a background check and had to do a private purchase of that gun. And as long as you can buy privately yeah. and you don't have a background check, a lot of those people will slip through the cracks. Yeah, I think we can do a better job on the background checks. I mean, there was a previous shooter who we had, uh, and we and I supported legislation mm -hmm. to fill this this loophole where the military he'd been convicted of uh, domestic violence while in the military, but they were not required to report that to the NCIS, and they needed to do that. So that was a background check a loophole that we needed to fix. Again, I supported that and was and was a strong advocate for that. But on the other hand, I don't think that if I want to sell or give a, a son to my uh, or a, a weapon to my son for Christmas, I don't think that that's, uh, that's a privy of the federal government to decide whether, whether I have the right to do that or not. Once again, trying to find that delicate balance. Trying to figure out how that will work. Well, speaking of delicate balance, I feel like the U.S. is always in a delicate balance uh, situation with all the countries where not exactly trying to keep the peace, but making sure that uh, there is peace around the world. Yeah. And uh, you serve on the House Intelligence Committee, and you've been spending part of your break here, not really on break, but touring uh, some places. Tell me where you've been, and I guess let's backtrack a little bit about why you do this. Do most House Intelligence Committee members do this and actually go out in the field yeah. and see what the situations yeah, are? Yeah, we have to. I mean, the, the Select Committee on Intelligence, it just requires that we do this. We travel all the time. And it's interesting, a lot of people think of us showing up in a military jet with four or five other congressmen and mm -hmm. senators, and, you know, we go shopping for a while. This is nothing like There's that. There's no shopping. Yeah, I, I almost always travel. You know, I'm the only member who travels. I'll travel with some of my staff and generally security. And, and like in, in this last trip we went to Egypt spent quite a lot of time in Egypt talking with uh, intelligence and, and government officials there we were in the Gulf states in uh, Bahrain and Qatar and the reason being we, we have this rift between Qatar and the other Gulf states the United States has got to help facilitate most of my time though was spent looking at, uh, at Iran uh, their nefarious activity in the Persian Gulf the Straits of Hormuz 
uh, as a former Air Force guy, I got to do one of the coolest things, and that was got my first carrier landing, got to go wow. land on the carrier, and that was very cool. But, you know, spend some time on the carrier and look at those operations as they're flying the, the F-18 Hornets and others, you know, to, to counter some of uh, Iran's pressing us and, and trying to, uh, it, you know, reinforce to Iran and others that the United States has a presence there and we will defend our interests. So I, I think that gives a little bit of the flavor of, yeah. of the things we're involved with. So just so people understand what you do on the House Intelligence Committee, you get intelligence briefings like the president would, yeah, correct? Exactly. And so you get these intelligence briefings, but it's tough to understand when you're reading on paper things going on. So you go to these countries. When you go there and gather information, what do you do with that information yeah. when you bring it back? Who does it go to? Does it help in the decision-making process? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually such a great question, and you phrased it so well. And that is, you know, you get these briefings, and well, that's helpful, right? But you need to go there and actually look at the program. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, a couple years ago, I was on the border of Syria. Now, I wasn't in Syria because it would be an illegal and a very bad idea for yeah. me to be in Syria at the time. But we had a covert operation there, a covert uh, program that was costing an, an awful lot of money. Over time, you know, more than a billion dollars. But we didn't know if it was working very well and whether it was worth that money and whether it was uh, maybe a good idea to, make, to, to divert those funds to other programs, which are also priorities. So I was there to actually evaluate and talk to individuals who were involved in implementing this, this program. And then coming back, by and large, the committee was going to listen to my recommendation on this because I was the one who was there to, uh, to, you know, to learn about it and learn more deeply. So those are the kind of things that we're looking at. It, it, it makes you feel a tremendous sense of responsibility in the sense it's not just the money, and it's a lot of money, but it, you, you realize that you're actually impacting people's lives, and the lives will be affected in some cases, you know, lost if we don't make the right decision here. So you try to be very thoughtful. You try to take the time to really understand and then make a good decision. Uh, you said that you spent a lot of time looking at Iran and the issues there. We've been dealing uh, with problems with ships out at sea, uh, drones being shot down. Anything that you came back with, surprised with, or learned that you thought, okay, this is really going to change the way I look at the situation there? Uh, I don't know that it actually said, okay, this changes the way I looked at the situation, but it brought some different elements to it. And I, I think I can give one example. And one of them is uh, I was on the US, USS Abraham Lincoln. And it reinforced this idea in a way that was actually kind of new to me, that the presence of the carrier in that region had an enormous influence on Iran. And I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last few weeks, they haven't been, you know, mining, mining the straits, mining ships, shooting down drones. And not entirely, but a big part of that explanation is the presence of the U.S. carrier, which wasn't supposed to be there. It was supposed to be up in the Med, uh, but we moved it down there. And once we'd done that, you know, it changed Iran's calculus about how much risk are they willing to take, how hard are they willing to push. So, you know, I've known as a, as a military guy that the presence of a carrier task force is an important uh, way to project U.S. power. But it was, you know, it, it was impressive to me to be there and to see directly how that influenced what were political decisions being made by the Iranian leadership. So having that watchful eye there, I think there's a lot of people who are talking saying, you know, maybe it isn't Iran, maybe it's somebody else acting on their behalf. Do you really believe that it is Iran when you see the ship goes there, all of a sudden they stop acting badly? Yeah. Is it a direct connection oh, to no, you? There's no question about it. And anyone who's supporting or suggesting anything else is just nonsense. I mean, clearly it's Iran. The evidence of it is overwhelming. I mean, it, you know, video and another intelligence, which is just, again, overwhelming and irrefutable. But more than that, there's just a broader picture of who else would it be? Who else could possibly benefit other than Iran in doing this? Now, let me, let me just make this a little more complicated, and that is Iran will sometimes use proxies 
they'll use the, the IRGC the, or, or some of the Hezbollah in some cases, some of the terrorist groups that they sponsor to, to carry out some of their attacks or nefarious activity. In this particular case, they didn't. This is just straight up Iranian uh, military forces, but they will use proxies in some areas around the world and that makes it a little more complicated. But in this case, it was just very clear. This is Iran, this is why they did it. This is what they hope to accomplish. This is how we hope to counter them. And, and it turns out that at least up in, the, in, in a very tactical point of view, in a very short period of time, what we did to counter them has been effective so far. And what happens there matters. I think sometimes it seems like it's a world away, but when we're talking about the Strait of Hormuz and we're talking about the oceans around there and the byways, this is where we get yeah. our oil from. It all matters. The whole world is somewhat dependent on this region. Yeah, absolutely. So it matters in the sense that you've just indicated, Heidi. I mean, a, a significant portion of the world's energy supply moves through the Straits of Hormuz. Now, thankfully, the United States has weaned ourselves off of this oil to a large degree. We're by and large energy independent. Thank heaven that we are. And you'd be paying much, much more for a gallon of gas this past Labor Day weekend were that not the case. But the East and West, Asia and Europe is very dependent. We are as well to a certain degree. But more than that, and, and I really mean more than that, it's this. Is the U.S. credible any longer? Is the U.S. able to influence world events any longer? That's what's at stake here. And I, I've said it a thousand times and I'll say it a thousand more. I know the world, uh, the U.S. can't be the world's policeman. As a former Air Force guy, as a former military guy, I know how hard we've worked our military, our military families, our, our, our equipment. Uh, we can't fix every problem, but there are some places that we have to be active and that we do have to lead the Persian Gulf, the Straits of Hormuz. This area is certainly one of them. You spent some time in Egypt. Why is Egypt so important? I think sometimes it's forgotten because we look at maybe Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, and we kind of think those are the only players that matter, but they all matter yeah. when you put the puzzle pieces together. Yeah, once again, it's a great question, uh, partly because there's uh, 100 million Egyptians. And if Egyptian is a failed state, it changes the dynamics throughout the region and in, an, in a really terrible way. Um, President al-Sisi, who I think is a, is a good man, struggling in a very dangerous part of the world under very, very difficult circumstances. And we need to support him, but while at the same time recognizing that we need to push him towards you know, more respect for human rights, more respect for the basic freedoms that we appreciate here. He's trying to find a delicate balance on that while he's being attacked in the Sinai by ISIS, and while he's being attacked at home. While I was there, there was a, a bombing not far from where I was that killed a couple dozen people. You know, it doesn't even make the news back home here. So uh, the, the bottom line for why Egypt matters is it's one of the largest Arab nations and they have to be uh, a successful state. They can't become like Libya, torn apart by strife and civil war, or that will spread through the region. And they've had some volatile years after the Arab Spring around yeah. in 2011 and turnover of power. Is it feeling a little bit more like there is certainty of some sort there? Uh, you know, I don't think I'd use the word certainty in that part of the world in almost any circumstance. Yeah. Uh, it feels a little bit better. I mean, uh, we've been able to help with the fight against ISIS in the Sinai. Uh, there's, uh, there's less violence domestically than there has been, quite a bit less. I think they finally got a hold on the Muslim Brotherhood and, and, and kind of things they were using to subvert the, the, uh, de you know, the democratically elected government. But it's a tenuous, tenuous situation. And, and truly, uh, I mean, it's one of the saddest circumstances. When you, when you go there, the poverty that you see, the impacts on, on millions of people's lives, it, it's hard to watch. It's hard to, uh, hard to see. And I've been there many times and things are a little bit better, but the progress comes so slow and it comes at such a price. Um, I think we need to be patient. We need to be persistent and, and, and continue to help them. But I also think we need to be realistic. It's a, it's a really delicate problem and it's got all sorts of 
dominoes that if any one of them were to fall, you know, much of what we're trying to do there would, would perhaps go away. So all of it matters. Did you come home feeling uh, like it was a good trip? You got a lot of information that I guess was a relief or did it stress you out thinking we got a lot of problems we got to work through? No, I've been stressed out so long <laughs> ago. So long. I've accepted <laughs> that. Uh, I come home thinking, and I, I've said this to a number of people, but it's just true. Every time I come home from most of these trips, I think just an overwhelming, I'm so grateful for our country. I mean, every time I come home, I go, God bless our nation. And, and the men and women and those who are fighting, not just in the military, but just the good people in our country who are trying to be a light to people, trying to help people. The, the United States is far and away the most uh, generous, the most humanitarian nation in the world. I mean, it's not even close. The, the American people who will reach out and try to help other people through, you know, through humanitarian efforts, through uh, NGOs, through church and religious efforts and others. So that's one of the things is, you know, thankful for this nation. And then the second thing is, as I've kind of indicated earlier, whether we like it or not, the United States has to, has to lead in, in some of these problems. Uh, we may not appreciate that responsibility, but I just think it's something that uh, if we don't, President Xi will in China, and we know what he'll do. President Putin would in Russia, and we know what he would do. Europe's not going to. Everyone in the world looks to us to lead. And, uh, and it's just a responsibility we have to be willing to accept. It's an important reminder. I think sometimes when you go on social media or you go to the Twitterverse where everything's in 140, 280 characters, and you just think, this country's a hot mess. I don't know how we're doing it. Is this going to stick together? But you go look at other countries, and you come back, and you realize, while there is dissent, we don't agree on all the issues. We have fair elections, and that's the reason why the Russians of the world want to interfere, because it is a fundamentally good yeah. country that has issues, but fundamentally oh, good. Oh, that's good. And look, we're not perfect. We've never been perfect. Yeah. And if make per perfect the threshold we, met, we need to meet, we'll never meet that threshold. But uh, you have to be ignorant of history, and I really mean that. You have to be ignorant of history not to appreciate that the United States has been a force for good for the last three or four generations or even longer, and that the world does look to us. And, um, and, and you know, that there's just something truly unique about this country. Speaking of what's unique, you're going to go back and do your unique job in Congress. Before we let you go, top three list. What are the three things that you're going back and saying, okay, these are the th three things that are most important to me, to my constituents when I go back to Congress and we're back in yeah. session? Uh, first thing is uh, National Suicide Prevention Hotline number, something we've been working on for three years or so. We're so, so close. FCC has designated 988 as that number. We need a final piece of legislation to put that in place. Uh, that will be, I think, our top priority this fall. And rollout will take how long? Are we talking about uh, six months, a year, no, two well, years? No, the, well, the language designates that it has to be fully implemented within a year. And we ask for a report at 180 days. I think we'll do it well before a year. The FCC is so, uh, is so uh, supportive of this idea and have been for so long, I think they're going to be able to do it fairly quickly. The second thing is, uh, once again, national security and, and, and finalizing the funding for the military, which we haven't done yet. And the third thing is, uh, I think we're sitting on the edge of a precipice on our national debt. And uh, I'm a fiscal conservative. It's the reason I ran for Congress in, in 2012. And we're moving in the wrong direction. And we're moving in the wrong direction under Republican leadership in some cases. And uh, we want to continue to preach the gospel that debt really does matter. If you have trillion dollar deficits and you think that's okay, uh, you know, it's going, to, it's going to hurt you and it will eventually catch up to you and it won't take a generation to do. It'll happen before that. It is a scary amount of money. I know the president's been talking lately about another tax cut possibly and we all like the idea of a tax cut. But when you're talking about trillions in debt and a recession on the way, is that something you would support? 
Well, first I, I want you to know that I don't think a recession is on the way. I think the fundamentals of the, of the economy are so strong still that, uh, look, it's going to come eventually. We know that. We'll, we'll go through cycles. But, uh, but I don't think there's any real evidence other than, you know, a, a little bit here and there that the, the economy may be weakening. But I don't think we're near a recession. Uh, but uh, the tax cuts, I think, need to be asked through this lens. Will it help grow the economy? Because, and this is something that many people really don't, don't acknowledge or don't want, don't want to acknowledge. There are tax cuts that pay for themselves. That you actually grow the economy such that the, you, the government gets more revenue. Because we go spend that money. That, that's right. The government gets more money than if we would not have had the tax cut. But if it's a tax cut that doesn't stimulate growth, then I couldn't support it. All right. Lots of questions, uh, lots to talk about, but only so little time. So, so Congressman, it's an honor to be with you. Thank, thank you, you so much for coming in here today. Uh, we'll be posting this online, and if you ever have questions for us, we're happy to have you here and talk about them. It's an honor. We, right. hope, we hope to come back. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Take Two, and we'll be back with the regular arguments next Friday.